Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. So I'm excited okay. today to, to have uh, Mark Shapiro, president of the Cleveland Indians, for our uh, PCA one-on-one interview. Um, before he was president, he served for nine years as executive vice president and, and GM of the Indians. Um, as president, he oversees the baseball and business operations department, um, which is something I want to come back and talk with you about, Mark, because I think the business side of sports, professional sports, often gets overlooked. Um, and I just Great. noticed in your in your bio that um, looking for for um, uh, different uh, creative things to do with your Walt Ballpark, the Indians Music Festival, Frozen Diamond Face-Off between Ohio State and Michigan, and Snow Days and Tribe Fest. Uh, pretty uh, pretty exciting stuff. Um, when you were EVP and GM, um, had some of the best years the Indians have had, um, and including in 2005, 93 wins, and, and um, which is the ninth highest total in Cleveland's history and in 2007 96 wins and came a, a game away from the the World Series. Um, both tw- 2005 and 2007 Mark was named Sporting News Executive of the Year. At that time he was the only GM who received that uh, notable list twice and um, the Indians were the organization of the year in 2006 by tops. Um, one other thing that I found really interesting, Mark, is uh, your implementation of a winter development program for your minor league mm-hmm. operations with a an individual player plan for every minor leaguer in the uh, Cleveland Indians farm system, which uh, shows incredible attention to detail. And, and I, I want to come back and talk about that, too, when we get into this. A couple more things. One is you played four years of football at Princeton, graduated in 89 with a degree in history, um, Commissioner right. Batilig has tapped you for a variety of different uh, items at the at the Major League Baseball level, and you're very active in Cleveland. Board member of the Center for Families and Children, uh, on the board of Positively Cleveland Recovery Resources, mm-hmm. and uh, was a key person in I mean really a key person in bringing Positive Coaching Alliance to to Cleveland. So Mark, it's just uh, Wonderful to have you part of the Positive Coaching Alliance movement. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I'm, I'm passionate about the movement, and as you know, my, you know, my interaction interface with it really came from, you know, just googling some resources as I started to delve into youth coaching with my son and, and reading your work and 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 just sending you a blind email thanking you for the what, what PCA and what you have done to advance and continue to ensure that youth sports is a positive influencer. Well, th- thank you for that. Um, I-, I remember that email came over the transom, and, and you said, um, I've been in professional sports all my adult life, but the education I received this past year with my son's baseball experience has blown my mind. Um, what, what, t- tell me a little bit about that. What, what did you see when, you're, when your son started playing travel ball and things like that? I guess, you know, what I really saw was just 
an incredible amount of inconsistency. You know, that there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of really well-intentioned people that had no roadmap, no course, no guidance on how to ensure the experience was a positive one, was one that focused on the right things. They were maybe uncertain as to what the right things were, but but really well-intentioned people. Then there were some not-so-well-intentioned people that really polluted the experience and focused on the wrong things, clearly. And unfortunately, there was a very small minority of people who both had knowledge, organization, preparation, and a background and understanding of how to ensure the experience is a really good one for kids and one that provides the basis and foundation for not only, you know, other other positive life experiences, but a desire to, to maintain engagement. Yeah, fantastic. Um, the, let, let's talk about the business side of, of baseball to start with. I, I remember reading years ago, Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam about the, the Portland Trailblazers, right about the time that Bill Walton, uh, who had been dominating the league, uh, got injured. And the big thing that came through to me reading that book was, I always thought in terms of players first, then coaches, but realizing how the organization of the Blazers at that time uh, really led to their downfall. And can you talk a little bit about how excellence throughout a whole organization, you know, it's not just the manager and the coaches, it's not just the players, but how does excellence throughout the whole Cleveland Indians organization help the, the team be successful on the field? Well, listen, I, I, you know, it's been a great transformation and, and transition for me to go from just running baseball operations and being involved in that side of the business for 17 years to now for the heading into my fourth year of overseeing both. And I think what I would take away is that, you know, we have to be an organization that is aligned behind a clear vision and a set of values. You know, we're a values-driven culture, and those values, ultimately, you want them to be manifested on the field with the way our players play the game and who they are and how they treat our fans. And for that to be the case, Jim, you've got to have alignment with your scouts that are out there watching high school, junior college, and college games throughout the country and internationally. You've got to have your player development staff that then inherit those players and bring those players through your system. You've got to have your sales staff who are out there selling the team and talking about what the team represents and your broadcasting group and your marketing group. And everybody needs to be aligned behind what that vision is and what our jobs are and understand that for the Cleveland Indians to be successful with the challenges we have and the size of our market and the, some, of the, some of the other business climate that we deal with in Cleveland and, and some of the issues that the Major League Baseball CBA creates, you know, from a revenue-sharing standpoint, that we need to excel. You know, excellence is the right word. We need to be not only just the best compared to other Major League teams, that we need to strive to set the standard and be the best in everything we do. You know, uh, Peter Senge at MIT wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, and we use that uh, as mm-hmm. uh, a lot of his ideas in our, our organizational culture workshops for leaders. And one of his sayings that really gets me, uh, really got to me is um, alignment before empowerment. That if, mm-hmm. you, if you tell people, hey, go out and here, coaches, here's your team, here's your roster, here's your practice schedule, go out and coach the way you coach, however that is, um, you're not going to get good results. And so getting coaches in a little league team or uh, all the people in a complicated organization like the Indians aligned mm-hmm. is really crucial. 
Yeah, and to me, those are I, I kind of call those the guardrails, right? Like you want to empower people, but leadership's two things. It's articulating the vision of where we're headed to. You, if you're going to create a plan or a strategy, either for a player or for a team, you need to articulate the vision. Here's what, here's what we want to represent. So I ask, I ask the 11-year-olds on my son's team, you know, when you see, when people watch us play, what do you want them to leave the ballpark saying about how we played? And I, wow. I ask 11-year-olds to go home and think about that. And it's not that we won, that we hit the ball hard. It's, you know, these, these kids will tell you that we respect the game. And then you ask them what that means, and they'll tell you what that means. That's the same as honor the game, you know, in, in PCA speak. And, you know, they, they, they'll tell you that they, they know what it means to be a good teammate, which means they're filling the emotional tank. And you know, they'll, they'll walk through those things. They may not use the exact same uh, language, but they will tell you all the same things as, as everything you've written or about and so, so aptly articulated and so to me you know yes the that that is the right sequence you need to have the vision of what we're going to be and you need to create the values of what we stand for you know that are the guardrails then you empower people to go out and lead to go out and and work towards that you know and take ownership and accountability for that yeah that's fantastic and that's um, transferable. That's analogous, right, to business. That's analogous to sports. It's analogous to youth sports. It doesn't matter what the environment you're in. You know, we, uh, in my intro of you, I talked about the, how every minor league player has a, a development plan. Yeah. Um, one of the um, – I'm, I'm working on a new book on team culture, and I keep coming back to this, uh, what I call the biggest cliche in sports, which is um, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, that is such a cliche. But it's really true. It is absolutely <laughs> that, true. And what, what strikes me about, um, you know, when, when you have players, like I just noticed that um, there was a, a poll of NFL players who, the, who they'd most like to play for. And overwhelmingly, the, it was uh, Pete Carroll, who is so incredibly positive. Um, and when you've got a positive coach, you know, players really, really want to perform perform for that person and what strikes me about your um your minor league plan is those players must feel really appreciated that you know maybe they're the last man or the next to last man on the totem pole but they've got their own plan yeah i mean it's still while this is a business environment i think you know what every player wants is to, to ultimately be communicated with and so you know i think what we're trying to do is instead of having development be something that's done to the players we want to partner with them and involve them in the process of their development and ultimately there's no coach in the world that has enough time to focus on every single player so we ultimately want to you know shift accountability and ownership of their development back to them our job is to relentlessly find the best resources mentally physically and fundamentally sometimes those are facilities sometimes they're coaches sometimes they're tools and equipment uh, but our job is to relentlessly find them then the plan is just the roadmap of how to apply those resources and ultimately getting it done is up to the player to take accountability for because there's no one in this environment that can really watch over them day to day and, and be that quality control they need to look in the mirror at the end of every night so we're our role in that is to you know continue to find the best resources to work with them, partner with them, to talk with them, to ensure we're, we're helping them, you know, to continue to implement and execute the plan. I think that that personal attention to someone, even though they have to step up and do it themselves, that personal attention is um, is a signal that the organization cares about them, and that all by itself can be really motivating. 
Yeah, and I was just it struck me when you were saying that that uh we've had a, an author named Dan Coyle in here with our our camp this week who wrote a book called The Talent Code, and, you know, greatness isn't born, it's grown. And you know, Dan was talking about master coaches, John Wooden among others, and it what struck you know, him and master coaches when he's went to all the talent beds, you know, the, across the world has been that they spend, you know, 90% of their time getting to know the players as people and talking to them and, and probably 10% of the time actually coaching them from a talent perspective. And when they do coach, the, by the way, those those coaching instructions are short, very short, very precise, um, and, and, and in and out. So, it, again, it is about exactly what you said. It's about the relationship. Well. So I want to talk to you about you as a son and you as a father. Let's start with you as a son. Um, you know, lots of prominent, uh, lots of children of prominent people uh, kind of never live up to their their mom or their dad's, uh, you know, hopes and status or whatever. Your dad was a, um, you know, expert on negotiations, very well known, a, a, a um, uh, you know, an agent for some of the greatest players ever. Uh, how, how was it growing up with a dad who is an expert on negotiations? <laughs> Not easy, right? Because every, everything you do is a negotiation in life. You know, I, I, I always joke with with my son that who's never said yes to me in a day in his life, whether it's the bites of broccoli or the bedtime, that uh, he inherited the negotiation gene from my dad because always, he's always trying to push the boundaries. Um, you know, I, I tell you this, Jim, w- w- growing up with my dad was a constant um, reminder of, of what it means to be a good person and a good man. And that, you know, I, I say this all the time is that, you know, the leader I am is the man I am. I'm not, when I walk in the, the, the building uh, to the ballpark or when I walk into spring training out here now, you know, I don't magically become the president of the Cleveland Indians. It's the same person I am as a brother, father, friend, son, husband, you know, those, I, you have to be the same in all your roles in life. Otherwise, it's not authentic, it's not sincere, and it's not sustainable. And my dad, I think, from the very simplest articulations of, of that, you know, the way he interacted with human beings and people, regardless of who they were, he was a guy that, he is a guy, rather, that, that you know, would, would walk into the mayor of Baltimore's office and would literally treat that guy no differently than the guy, you know, the valet at his, you know, office building, uh, who actually was, he probably was closer with and was, you know, uh, was, was a friend of our families. I mean, it, you know, my dad just treats people well and uh, doesn't doesn't qualify people and just understands and looks for the positive in, in all people that he sees and looks to help and, and make people around him uh contribute to the you know the world around him and so uh yeah I grew up my I grew up uh with the quote the Winston Churchill quote on my dad's wall that you you make a, a living by what you get you make a life by what you give and uh, he he lived that every day and does Wow, and uh, you know Ron Shapiro's one of his one of his books, which the title is, is hard to top, the power of nice, <laughs> the power of nice, how to negotiate so everyone wins, especially you. Um, I mean, it just there's such a uh, you know there's there's uh, I've, I've been using the term entrenched lately, talking about uh, high school news sports. There's there's uh, it's an entrenched institution, and people have. Um, ideas about how you get the best out of people by being nasty and snarly, but there are examples like your dad throughout uh, the business world of people who do really, really well by being nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you just take the basic premise that you know you're 
you want to use every negotiation, every interaction as an opportunity for the, you know to build for the next one. You know, it just makes logical sense, and it, it fits with who we are, and fits with who I am, and you know, in, in the world of baseball too, where there's only 29 potential teams you can deal with and a limited number of agents you can deal with. I think his his teachings are particularly appropriate, and in the end, I think all of us, you know, the way to build a career um, instead of just flame out, have some success and flame out, is to build relationships. Yeah. So let's talk about you as a as a dad. Um, I remember when I was in Cleveland uh, for the PCA Cleveland launch, you mentioned about how your uh, your son your your son has picked up your way of watching the Indians play. Uh, and it, it's around managing expectations. Like, right, right. You know, if you if everybody thinks the Indians are going to be terrible and you have a mediocre season, it's like, wow, that's great. If they think you're going right. to win the World Series and you have a mediocre season, it's terrible. Can you talk about how that's um, how you deal with the, you know, the you know having every every single game a, a win and loss and how that uh, yeah. how you see that playing out with your son. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm proud of that with my son, but I think it was one of those things that just kind of happened from him sitting and, and, and watching games with me and Chris Antonetti, the general manager, you know, from the time he was born. Um, and it's just something that inherently I think we do because we, we're looking at, you know, there's 162 Major League Baseball games in a regular season, and every one of those has nine innings and so many moments within a season that when you work so hard and you care so much about outcomes um, and you're not really having any control during the moments the actual competition's played. So we work very hard at the process, right? All day, all day long, all year long, every month, every week, you know, 24-7, 365, we're focused on the process. But for the three hours a night the game is played, we have very little control. And that's a very tough thing. And, uh, you know, so I think what I've always done without really being conscious of it was, you know, we, you know, we tend to be a little negative or at least we tend to kind of manage our own expectations to an outcome. And until I heard my, my son, you know, parroting us without realizing it, I never was that conscious of it. And uh, now to hear, you know, when you hear a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old start to say, oh, my gosh, his pitch count's up in the first inning, you know, he's never, you're like, oh, my, what, what is he saying? And you realize, I know exactly why he's saying. And, you know, it, it is a great reminder that, you know, how much your kids listen to everything you say and, and how much they observe what you do. And, you know, it, it always comes back to me, and I do think about this with youth coaching too, Jim, that, you know, they're, you know, they're not going to listen to what you say, but they're going to watch everything you do. So you can talk the talk all you want. You can have your lesson plan out there. You can, you know, have your, you know, your, your pregame and your postgame comments. But, you know, how you manifest that and the way you deal with the players and the way you talk to the other coach and the way you talk to the umpire, you know, you are you know, in the simplest and the simplest and best thing you can do is model the behavior you want your players to have. Yeah. Let's talk about positivity. I was interested in your bio that you're on the board of Positivity Cleveland. Um, yeah. And uh, Bruce Bochy uh, spoke at our awards center. We gave him our Lifetime Achievement Award a few years ago, and he talked about what you said, you know, 162 games is a long game or a long season, and there are ups and downs. And if you're going to be resilient, you have to have positivity. And I know when you talked about Tony Francona uh, joining uh, the Indians, um, you know, we, we talked about positivity. How important is positivity in baseball? I, I mean, it is, 
You know, the thing that I love about baseball, and especially, again, as I look at it through the lens of youth baseball, not just professional, is that, you know, I, I think the, the absolute articulation of character is how people respond when they, when they meet challenges and adversity and setbacks. And baseball provides you a microcosm of thousands of those over the course of a season. So, you know, you've got all these different benchmarks to, to determine and, and to demonstrate what your character is, what your resolve, what your resilience, what your grit is. And baseball, you know, more than any other sport, you know, failure is an inherent part of the game. You know, the absolute the Hall of Fame hitters are guys who fail seven out of ten times. You know, over a season, a course of a season, with you know, a pitcher pitching 200 innings, a starting pitcher pitching 200 innings, and, you know, facing, you know, hundreds of hitters over that time, there's going to be so many moments that he has to deal with. And you are, you know, much like some of the other individual sports, you're naked out there on the mound. And for a kid to be on the mound, even more than a professional, um, and have to deal with walks and errors and, or to have to deal with a strikeout, you know, you've got that moment in time when you've just you've got to figure out how do I handle that emotion? How do I make that constructive? How do I make that not an inefficiency? How do I help that not to derail me? And um, you know, so I, baseball provides that. It, it's a great opportunity for leadership, which is to help people understand how to handle those things and set you know a tone. Uh, that's more accepting of them, even embracing, you know, those challenges. Um, and that, that to me is where, you know, positive psychology and, and a positive attitude and a positive mindset is so crucial to having any ability to sustain uh, highly, a competitive level in baseball and ultimately to take away the great lessons from youth baseball. I, I happen to see Tony Francona on baseball tonight on ESPN, uh, right after he was appointed manager of the Indians, and you know they were they were kind of giving him a hard time about you know uh, going going to in, uh, to the Indians, and and he said there's there's only two places I'd want to be. One is right here, and one is with the Indians. And he mentioned you and and several other people in the Indians as, as a just a, a class organization. Um, and I know you uh, you said to me you feel like he's one of the most positive managers in baseball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that, that to me was a, a kind of the reward of everything I've been working for in my career. To have, to have Terry say that he's here because of Chris and me, um, to me means that you know the values. You know, here's a guy who won two World Series, and here's a guy who's accomplished everything you can in his career, and is at a position where he has the luxury of making a decision based on what's most important to him. And so, how does he frame that decision, Jim? He frames it. It's a values-based decision. He he made a decision saying, what's going to provide me the most meaning, fulfillment, uh, and happiness in my job? And that's being with people I respect and trust and who I'm aligned with. And, you know, to me, for a guy that has that luxury to make a decision based on anything he wants and makes it based on that and then comes and makes us better, better than we objectively should be right away, um, to me it's just kind of an affirmation of what we talked about with my dad earlier and what we've talked about what I've always tried to build here. Um, and so it's it, it's been rewarding for me. That's fantastic. Um, let's talk about the whole um, Moneyball situation. Um, we had a, an event with uh, Tony Arusa recently, and um, the um, you know he's I, I think unfairly because Tony uses a lot of of uh, statistics and analytics, but he's been kind of portrayed as being on the the gut instinct side of things, and and um, so so a couple different thoughts. One is. Um, 
and, and maybe you can address these together or separately, but sort of the, the statistics versus the instinct or the gut feeling of a, of a manager. How do you balance those two things? And then secondly, uh, people are saying that it's, it's becoming less of a manager coach's game and more of the, you know, the management, the team uh, organization game. Um, how, do, how, do you, uh, how do you respond to either or both of those? Um, I guess, you know, that the entire characterization of the role of analytics and um, objective analysis into this, you know, oversimplified money ball, uh, you know, moniker is just, it bothers me. You know, that, you know the, anyone that's successful in anything they do, anyone that knows Tony La Russa and, and why he's successful, knows that the most successful people want the best information. And the best information is going to come in a multitude of forms. So when I make decisions and we make decisions with the Indians, we want the absolute best objective analysis, the best statistical analysis that exists out there, and the best people providing that. But we also want the best subjective analysis, the best scouting information, the best, you know, uh, human characters. We want the best makeup character personality information. We want the best medical information. And then, you know, there's still an art form in how you blend all those variables to make the best decisions. So, um, you know, I guess what I'd say is I think that human nature is, you know, there's a tendency to oversimplify things um, and, and to try to de- understand understand them and, and, and digest them in the ways that are more entertaining. Um, that book and that movie were oversimplifications and entertaining characterizations of, of what happened 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And I think that it, it is a fascinating area to delve into and to understand. And in the end, we're ultimately trying to quantify the unquantifiable, which is human beings. And, and that's the fun part of this business is that they are human beings. You can't, you're never going to get a computer to spit out the answer. Well, one of the uh, analyses of Moneyball, the book uh, I read that really st- struck a chord with me, is there's almost no um, mention in the book of the A's pitching staff, and they had this fantastic pitching staff, that, but right. that didn't quite fit into the narrative. Yeah, and again, I think that that's what you know Michael Lewis does so well is he he looks for the interesting parts and he's selectively picking those out. And I think probably a lot of people who write those types of books are doing the same. The book pointed out some incredible things that Billy Bean, who's a good friend of mine, did, which is find some inefficiencies in a marketplace and look for value where other people weren't looking for value because he had to overcome significant challenge and odds. So there's a great tale to be told in doing that, and uh, but it's no longer relevant, right? I mean, it was 15 years ago. Those things have changed and everybody's moved on to the new things. And Nobody is that smart and nobody is that dumb as a movie might characterize them to be. And, you know, there's there's always other people that are good at doing what they do. If you look at the Tampa Bay Rays and what they've been able to do, probably nobody better. It's just no one's written a book about those guys yet. Yeah. You know, th- this takes me back to the issue of positivity. Um, Barbara Fredrickson, who is a academic at University of North Carolina, she's on our National Advisory Board, and she wrote a book called Positivity, and she says that what negativity does is it closes, tightens you up and it closes you off, so you take in less input. And what positivity does is it broadens and builds you. And the broadens mm-hmm. part is you're able to take in more sensory data. And I was just thinking about, you know, when you're in a situation uh, as a manager, 
and you've got um, you've got you have all the data in your head, and you've got to make a decision. You know who you substitute, what what you do, that the positivity can can make you more open to taking in more data, so you ideally make better decisions. I I think that's very very well put. You know I think you know whether it's mindset, and I know you've you know you've incorporated a lot of Carol Dweck's work into your work as well, or whether it's positivity, you know, they're all, you know, the pervasive attitudes that we bring to our jobs and the openness to information is an important one. Now you still gotta have the ability to critically reason and prioritize, right? I mean you can you can have too much information. If you can't categorize it, if you don't have that skill set to be able to reason critically and think critically and then end up with a prioritization, then it can overwhelm you too. Yeah. Um one of our um one of our models for athletes is a triple impact competitor, uh, someone who makes himself better, makes her teammates better, and makes the game better by the way they compete. Right. Um, Love that. Who, you know, who, who is, uh, you know, one or more, but just somebody who is, uh, if you've seen up close uh, in professional sports who's been a great triple impact competitor. I mean, I, I can think of, of more than a few. I can think of, you know, Hall of Famers like Jim Tomey and, and great players like Victor Martinez, and I can think of, you know, uh, you know, maybe some guys that had great, good careers but didn't quite have that career, and Sean Casey, and all those guys had the same thing. They're driven to be the best that they can possibly be. They're driven to achieve uh, their potential individually, which means they're controlling all the controllables they can control. At the same time, they are passionate teammates, meaning they care deeply about their teammates, and that may be not just challenging the guys around them to be as good as they can be. That may just be empathy, compassion, caring, you know, for their teammates and, and being there as positive reinforcement for them and, and being generous with their wisdom. And I, another guy I'd mention is that, you know, Jason Giambi, who I've had a chance to see at the end of his career, is, is probably the most generous player I've ever seen. So I would say that he's another example of that. And at the same time, because those guys, you know, do what I said earlier, the way they are incredibly consistent, incredibly consistent with their interactions with other people and, and incredibly honorable, um, that they respect the game at, at an elite level and they make the game better for having, having been a part of it. So I, you know, those are some guys that just, you know, if you, if you dissect, you know, who they were in the clubhouse, you dissect their accomplishments, you know, you understand the role they played and the teams they played on. They made their teams better uh, because of the teammates they were. They've made the game better because of the respect they've showed for the history of the game of baseball and the understanding that they're just passing through. Um, and they made themselves as good as they can possibly be because of their work ethic and their discipline and their ability to handle the adversity and their resilience. Wow, thank you. Um, a, co a couple more questions. One is... Um, we we characterize at Positive Coach Minds, we characterize the dominant sports culture as an entertainment sports culture. Um, that you know, in sports, the only way you uh, you entertain fans is by winning, um, and so there there becomes a real intense need to win, and that win at all cost mentality can filter down and color all levels of sport, way down to the t-ball level. Uh, and we've we've defined something we call the development zone. That when you walk onto a little league field, you walk into a gymnasium, uh, to a football field, through signage and other ways, people understand this is a development zone where the goal is to develop better athletes, better people. Um, and you know, it's it's not that there isn't um, it's not a 
uh, all or nothing. I mean, there are lots of uh, examples of uh, great double goal coaches and triple impact competitors and development zone organizations in the professional sports industry. But we're really, really trying to create that distinction that what high school and youth sports is about is creating a development zone and getting the leaders on board to do that. Any thoughts about uh, this concept of a development zone? I mean, I, my, my thought is yes, <laughs> you know, amen. I mean, I think I, I've always articulated it. it, you know, one great thing to say and, and one of the immediate kind of places where the youth sports experiences goes off track is if you could get every parent and every coach, uh, mostly every parent, to say, you know, let me let's start with this premise. And it may, it may not even be right in 100% of the cases. It's probably going to be right in 98% or 97 Your daughter or your son will never play college or professional sports. If, that was, if you could make that assumption or, uh, you know, what would you want to get out of the experience? And that really forces them to think about, you know, what's most important. It's the character-building opportunities. It's the, you know, the fundamental development, you know, uh, athletically. It's the interpersonal interactions. It's the understanding of, of all the great things that, that we've talked about, you know, prior in this call. And if you could get the coach to understand what's most important about their role. It's, it's not the wins and losses that are going to be indicative of, of 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds. Is that really what you want to represent? Your, or was it how good of a mentor were you? How good of a developer were you? Um, and I think, listen, the, the players are actually the smallest part of all that because their tendency is to probably do all those things anyway. And I'm yep. sure it's among the many things that you and I have read and seen that they just want to have fun and they just want to get better and improve and they just want to have great experiences. And that winning may be some piece of that, but that's not what they probably list in the top two or three things if they were left to their own devices. So I, I think if you can get the parents and coaches straightened out, the playing, the player side of it, they're, when, they, when they go off track, it's they're, they're just reacting. They're reacting to the pressures they're feeling either at home in that car ride home or from the coaches. And if you can get uh, parents and coaches, and a lot of times it's just a matter of being a little more aware, you know, just reminding yourself, you know, oh, that you're right. I, this is not preparation for Major League Baseball. This is not preparation for Division One college basketball or football. This is just, it is what it is. It's, it's youth sports as an incredible developer, you know, incredible opportunity to build a life-forming experience for, for my daughter or for my son. One one of the people you brought into the PCA movement is Charlie Maher, your uh, sports psychology uh, director at the Indians. And uh, mm-hmm. Charlie came out to our trainer institute last year, and he just and I did a, a podcast interview with him a few weeks ago, and he's just had such an impact on PCA thinking. One of his phrases that I just love is "mind in the moment." And when you're right. just talking about, we need to remind ourselves. Um, you know, we, we want to win this game so badly and we kind of get off kilter and, you know, coming back to keeping our mind in the moment, uh, on what's really important seems so crucial. What an unbelievable, I mean, it's, it's a basic tenet of, you know, whether it's, you know, Zen, 
you know, premise, whether it's, you know, philosophical, whether it's sports psychology, or whether it has to do with each one of us just functioning as a human being most effectively, the more we can be in the moment, the more we can not dwell on the past or, or obsess about the future, uh, then ultimately the better our performance is going to be and the happier we're going to be. You know, if you look at the, if you drill down and look at where the discordance comes from, you know, where the interruptions and the inefficiency comes from in, in, in our emotional lives and in our performances, you know, it often has to do with us thinking too much about the past or too much about the future. And so, you know, Charlie does a great job of, of being process-based and process-focused, but ultimately telling us, you know, stay in the moment, keep, keep present. Yep. So last question. Um, there, there are a lot of people around the country who have been impacted by PCA, and they use our tools, and they tell us they're coaching better, et cetera. And then there are people who are supporters uh, who – you know, maybe give money, they, they, they're supportive. Um, and then they're the advocates, and you are one of our most effective advocates. Um, you know, you were really crucial in uh, cr- uh, getting the seed funding from the Indians, uh, uh, DDR, and the Cavaliers for us to open our PCA Cleveland office. You helped us with Minnesota and with Tampa. Um, why, are you, why are you such an advocate for PCA? I, it's it's an extension of what I've experienced and what I've learned throughout my entire personal life, and then what I'm experiencing as a father. And you know, it just it was that it was that moment for me of reading what PCA is doing uh, and what you have pioneered. That just was like this is it. This is a scalable, um, easily applicable. Uh, systematic approach to ensuring that youth sports is everything it should be and can be. And so for me, it has been a, it, it played, it has played an absolutely integral role in my development as a person, a leader, um, you know, professionally and personally. And I think that, that there's so many opportunities for that to be, you know, replicated throughout all of youth sports, but there are so many opportunities for that to be polluted and spoiled. And, you know, I think being an advocate for PCA means you're reminding people of what is most important to get out of a youth sports experience and then reminding people that it's not bad to say you want to win or you want to be the best you can be, but to focus on everything else that leads up to those outcomes, not to focus on those outcomes. And, you know, what you'll end up with is just an incredibly enriching experience that helps everyone get something really positive out of it. Um, And and I think, you know, that's why I'm passionate about PCA, because I think it, it represents the best uh, scalable opportunity to to ensure that as many kids as possible get that experience. Mark, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for today and for all your support. No, as I uh, as I've told you before, Jim, thank you for everything you've done and continue to do to help PCA be a resource out there for for all the all the youth coaches, parents, and players. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One on One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.